Hi everybody and thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Chris and I are recording these remotely at the moment as for obvious reasons we can't be in the same studio together so do bear with us while the um, audio sort of jumps in different quality and obviously the occasional blipses as we record live over the internet but hopefully we're still bringing you the same kind of conversations we've always been bringing you. You can follow us as always on Twitter at FananimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, and that's also the home and handle of our shiny new Instagram page as well as on Facebook. So do follow along and take part in the conversations online. But for now, enjoy another episode. I can show you the world. Shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess Now when did you last let your heart decide? Hello, listeners, and welcome to the uh, latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. So for this instalment, Alex and I continue our series of lockdown specials. Um, we're also doing a film that speaks to an earlier episode and some closing remarks we made pretty much around this time last year when we looked at uh, the 1992 Disney animated feature Aladdin. And when we originally recorded that episode, we speculated a little uh, on what shape the then upcoming Guy Ritchie musical remake might take and how... Uh, and indeed if it would adapt the animated film. So the time has come now to make good on some of these speculations as we take on the 2019 version of Aladdin, uh, directed by Ritchie, uh, to see how it reworks, or perhaps not, uh, Disney's celebrated musical. Uh, As Iago says in the new version, this could be fun. So it won't be just us chatting about genies, lamps and magic carpets, but we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Miles Roby, a visual effects editor on the film, uh, whose other editorial work includes roles uh, on the Harry Potter films, uh, particularly the Deathly Hallows, uh, Skyfall, uh, so that's our obligatory Bond reference in about a minute into the episode, uh, Muppets Most Wanted, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, uh, and the recent Sam Mendes feature, 1917. Uh, it's also a special pleasure for me, as I've known Miles since we were undergraduate film students together about 16, 17 years ago, which is terrifying, um, and we're also flatmates, so I'm particularly thrilled to have something of a reunion uh, live on air. So Miles, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, and thanks so much for bringing up Muppets Most Wanted. <laughs> my uh, jewel in the crown <laughs> i would happily talk about muppets most wanted for an hour if you'd like miles <laughs> uh, i mean if you want if you want to delve into that at any point as well i'm happy to um <laughs> it was the worst experience of my life <laughs> great um so yeah i mean i was talking with alex off air um, a little bit about visual effects and visual effects editing and he was sort of asking me okay so what 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 does the role in, entail but also i guess how you kind of came to that because obviously when i when i um knew you when we, when we were students together I obviously knew that you were passionate about film and stuff and so I'm, I'm interested I think personally on how you sort of fell into visual effects editing what that role is um, and ultimately I guess how you sort of came to work on this this 2019 version of Aladdin. Sure well yeah as you say I mean I've, I've always wanted to work in film and having worked as a production runner on a few on a few things you kind of get an idea of the departments that you feel that you want to go into and I was always wanted to get into the kind of creative one of the creative departments and camera or editorial seemed to be the best ways in for me um so when I worked as a production runner on um uh Harry Potter and uh, the Half-Blood Prince and kind of got to know the editorial team and when an opportunity came up on the Deathly Hallows to be their trainee I kind of jumped at it having no kind of editorial training or anything like that it's kind of Part of, part of the thing being in the film industry is it's 
both what you know and who you know um and sometimes um they'd rather they someone they know and someone they can train up rather than someone who thinks they know everything on day one so yes that's how i got into editorial uh, and from being a trainee and kind of doing teas and coffees and just seeing how a, a cutting room kind of works um on particularly on a massive visual effects movie like uh, the harry potters um i kind of ended up just doing climbing more up the ladder in editorial uh, until eventually um you know continuing to work on some fairly large scale films and just because i've the older i've gotten the more technically minded i've become yeah the visual effects side of things is quite a kind of a te- one of the more technical parts of the of the department and I just found myself kind of naturally falling into it on uh, on smaller shows where you get more responsibility and they wouldn't necessarily hire a kind of individual visual effects editor, but they still have visual effects shots in them. Uh, I ended up kind of doing all that work um, myself and having done that for a little while, I decided just to bite the bullet and just do that full time. So um, yeah, I probably took the shift from being just a assistant editor uh, to being kind of visual effects editor about four years ago. Um, and being a visual effects editor is basically just being in charge of uh, and tracking and managing all of the shots in the film that have visual effects in them. Doesn't mean that you're you're editing those shots. It's, I mean, it's a bit of a kind of misnomer. The title visual effects editor. I'm not kind of there. It's being like, oh, this this scene's 50% visual effects. I'm going to cut all the visual effects stuff. It basically just means that if there is any visual effects in a scene, we're responsible. Visual effects editor is responsible for providing all those bits of material to a visual effects vendor or, or an in-house uh, vendor and kind of doing things within uh, the edit suite, doing little um, visual mock-ups and um, all sorts of different things within the edit, but everything that has to do with visual effects. So I'm kind of, I'm not, a, an assistant editor might do a lot of the sound work and they might do, um, they might prep the, the dailies that come in every day and things like that. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is if something comes in and the editor says, oh, well, I want there to be an explosion in the background there. I'm the one that's like, right, OK, how, let's make that happen quickly. And then let's also put it into practice for the long term uh, by kind of giving it to the people who can make it look releasable. So um, I'm, uh, I'm, it's my job on the podcast to ask stupid questions, Miles, because I'm, I'm relatively stupid, certainly when it comes <laughs> to all things technical. Um, so let me um, just sort of unpack some of that, because it sounds, it sounds like a, a sort of quite an um, important labour uh, organisation process going on here. Um, from my understanding, and this is purely from having done a few of these interviews with a few practitioners now, um, when the visual effects artists get... Um, the shots they've pretty much got the shots locked in as they might be in the final film is that correct or have I misunderstood no I mean that's that's true I mean there's a whole process that goes on um, before shoot starts then during shoot and then after shoot so like before they even start shooting a film especially one like um, Aladdin or any any of the big kind of blockbusters um, so that they know what they need to shoot because a lot of the sequences are very technical they'll storyboard a lot of things and um, even beyond storyboarding what they'll also do is they'll have what's called previs which is um, they'll do kind of a 3d build of the sets that they know that they know are being built they've got all the dimensions they're able to build in the computer the sets um, and then they're also able to have virtual cameras and they can actually build sequences using 
kind of rudimentary but increasingly impressive lookalike characters uh, matching the kind of the leads from the film and they can block block out sequences so that when they come to shoot it they actually know kind of how the, the, the scene's going to look and you know on, on, a lot of, on a lot of occasions these previous sequences will be for the kind of the large action scenes but they'll be worked on for months and months and months ahead of the film actually taking place and then when they when they go to shoot it it's a kind of skeleton for the um for the production to to kind of follow um and then once they have shot it uh they then go through a process which is called post fizz which is where they take the now live action um, material and then they put in cg elements but they do it on a kind of temp basis so you, you have kind of in-house departments or kind of post fizz houses whose work is purely kind of essentially throw away i mean a lot of it can tie into the later shots but what they're doing is they're taking um on usually kind of as quick times out of the avid so not kind of the full resolution camera files we'll give them kind of what we think the scene is where we want these kind of things to happen so you know where the magic carpet should be flying where um, you know where genie should be all this kind of stuff we give it to them they work it all up it comes back into the edit and then the director can look at it and go that's either right or that's not right and it gives us a kind of um, working um, approval process and then once that's been locked down that is when we will kind of pass the scene over to the actual final finishing vendor who put all the bells whistles lighting effects all, all of the kind of stuff that ends up being um, you know the, the stuff that hopefully wows the audiences and things like that but that comes at the very final stages so we don't just kind of once we finish the sequences give it to the visual effects vendor and say right there you go make it look amazing generally speaking they've got very good reference for what we want it to look like uh, and it's been worked out and approved in various different stages by the director I mean, it sounds like this this sort of uh, discussion or this this use of digital technology. I mean, I I I was familiar with previs. I was not familiar with this kind of term postvis, but it seems like obviously digital technology, computer graphics. You're in the previs stage. You're using, I think you said, kind of rudimentary, um, but you know, increasingly sophisticated, but ultimately rudimentary uh, mock-ups of sets and so forth. But the, the, in ways that anticipate the use of CG in the kind of finished film. So it's 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 there in the previs stage and then will as you say have these sorts of bells and whistles that are then added um later on later on down the line and then you obviously have this post viz stage that seems to be this increasing dialogue between you and the vendor and all this sort of thing um but it seems to only reminds me of these debates that circulated certainly around this film but other um i guess the other quote unquote live action and i'm put, i'm using air quotes as i say live action um but this sort of the way that aladdin is positioned within this continuation or this continuum of these quote unquote uh cycle of live live action remakes and and the emphasis on these sorts of films are they live action are they animation are they live action films with a bit of animation are they ostensibly animated films given what's being built it seems like that kind of debate from what you're describing doesn't necessarily happen in in you know what i see in the finished film but it seems like digital technology your role as a visual effects editor seems you know it seems to bear out the fact that computers are being used at almost every stage and quite consistently in this previs and then ultimately post viz process they they are and uh, aladdin was an interesting one actually because i mean just a little thing about previs um 
before I go into it, but the previous process is also useful because shots are generally generally shot out of order. They're shot, you know, um, how the schedule works for all the actors and all the locations and everything. But it, so it means that you're able to, if you've got a previous sequence cut together, and often they'll have you, we ha- they have previous editors now. So before the film starts shooting, there'll be a whole kind of section, uh, a whole load of sequences that have all been cut, scored, added, had sound effects added. So when you're kind of trying to review the film as it goes along, uh, and you might be missing, um, you know, one scene, which is sandwiched by two others, you're still able to screen the film because you've got two sequences that have been shot, and then you've got this previous sequence in the middle of it, and it still lets you kind of watch the film in a run. Um, so that's kind of really useful. Ah, so it kind of does the job of, of the finished, so it's like a... Um... Uh, what's the word, like a, a filler that allows you to have that consistency. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a placeholder. It lets you it lets you know the timing of it. It lets you kind of, so um, generally speaking, they're kind of, they're fleshed out to a, a pretty substantial degree so that you can kind of look at the film and some, sometimes they might even look at it and go, actually, you know what? We don't need that anymore. You know, the film is running a bit too long um, and they might then decide to go back into the previews and chop out a few scenes like the the um the magic carpet chase towards the end of aladdin was very much a case of that that sequence was really really hefty when i when i started the film uh, which was a kind of a week or two out from shooting um and it was probably a couple of hundred shots in there and that got really pared down to about 75 in the end so they kind of they're able to look at these cut together sequences and depending and that was before it had all been fully shot as well so yeah it gives an opportunity and then and then also with a film like Aladdin there'll be a lot of shots that are completely CG so they're what the previous is able to do is let them know whether that shot is actually necessary or not because it's not like they need a live action element to actually put in there they'll just be creating an entirely CG element for it so if they don't if they look at the previous cut and decide we don't need that then they don't need to spend all the money making the kind of the fully CG lit rendered version of it. But the interesting thing with Aladdin was Guy Richie um, doesn't really like to see things until they're kind of close to completion. He's not he's kind of he, he's happy to come in and see the um, the kind of design, the concept stages of things and sign off on designs, but he doesn't really want to see blocky looking, lifeless um, uh, early drafts of things throughout the cut because it completely breaks the immersion for him um, so when we were kind of trying to figure out a plan to do all of the post viz part of this film and we've got you know we've got the genie we've got Yago we've got Raja um, you've got Abu you've got all these quite sophisticated and difficult uh, animated characters who all have a reference point from the 1992 original and the 2D animation has so much character in it one thing that we found was we actually hired a big team of 2D animators to come in and they were the ones that um, did a lot of the designs and so they'd shoot a live action plate of the, of, the, of the film and by plate I mean just shot, that's what we refer to the shots as yeah. uh, before visual effects work is done and we then got 2D animators to draw in um, kind of much like the um, much like the original movie, they do a 2D anim version of the characters. And Guy was quite happy with that because the 2D animation, you could get so much more 
emotion and character out of it kind of quicker without it looking like a early draft of a, of a 3D kind of uh, version of the scene. So we hired a huge team. Once once we were kind of we knew that guy was happy to go in that direction. Um, we hired as many 2D animators as we could, and when we had a sequence ready, we'd pass it over to those guys we'd say we kind of we want characters to be the animate that kind of the actors the animals all these different characters to be here here and here and they would then animate it and then they'd send us back the animated um kind of the 2d animation which we could drop as a kind of uh a mat if i don't by mat i mean it's kind of there's an alpha channel so they could just give us the animation back and we could kind of drop it over the top of our image so if we needed to move it around or scale or things we still could but it meant that for a large portion of the movie we were working with 2d animation um, on top of the live action plates which was really um it's not something i'd done before um and it's becoming kind of increasingly common uh, i think i think we ended up referring to it as sketch fizz oh, wow. as a whole new so there's lots of different terms for these things now but if you actually if you do watch the new one um, if you can bring yourself to do that, um, there's a, th- a sequence where Aladdin is asked to find uh, this made-up um, kingdom that he says he's from on a map, and uh, a 2D version of uh, the genie pops up on the map and spins around. That 2D genie was drawn by the guy that did the majority of the genie work for us in the whole movie, and that's how he looked um, for pretty much the whole movie um, before... Um, guy says he's, he was happy with the kind of position and the and the action of what the genie was doing, and then we kind of converted it into um, CG. It sounds to me like we we you know uh, there's a, quite a lot of academics who try to sort of articulate you know what digital technology does to the filmmaking process, and it sounds to me like what the production history of this film demonstrates nicely is that the general public, or at least I don't know, my perception of, of, of visual effects is that they're additive. They add things to the live action. So, you know, in my clunky way of thinking, um, you get all the actors, you shoot them in green screen, you put your tennis balls around set, and then you put in the effects later. But from what you're describing, Miles, it sounds like that's not the right way around to think of it. Actually, you put the effects in, or you put a version of the effects in, you put the digital animation is the is the skeleton and then the live action is part of a series of solutions to fill in that skeleton it's it's the it's the live action that's being added to the digital not the other way around and if it's being planned properly that's actually that is true yeah because what what these shots can be extremely expensive and when you have large sequences which are predominantly cg um, you don't want to be tied into um, something that you can't change later. So what you want to do is you want to map out what the sequence is, and then you're essentially just you're then shooting the live action as kind of elements just to drop into what you already know the scene is, uh, because otherwise you get a lot of wastage. Um, you know, a, tr- a tricky one for us was um, a whole new world because that's. Uh, other than the two of them on a carpet rig that, you know, there's lots of behind the scenes things showing them on that. So I'm not giving too much away to say that's how they did it. There wasn't, they, they weren't out on location doing a lot of this, but what? Uh, yeah, they, yeah the, the, the magic carpet was just a big rig, uh, but it had, the t- had, but there's only so much you can do with that. And also everything you shoot 
is 2D. So you have to then fit a 2D um, shot into 3D environments. So you have to make sure that the camera, any camera moves that you're doing, and you're trying, you're trying to make these things kind of dynamic and um, and impressive. And if you're just trying to kind of basically, if all you, all you have is a static camera shooting a 2D element, there's not a lot you can do with the backgrounds um, because you can't get, if you move the camera around them, the perspective won't work. So these things have to be fairly, well, very um, carefully planned in advance of shooting because otherwise you end up with um, a bit of a kind of uh, difficult um, problem to fix. I would, I actually, I, I suppose, given that the, the the way that you've described the production of the film, the 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 labour that's involved, this kind of collision between different spheres of labour, the relationship between different stages of production, and, and obviously you talked um, about wastage and and the interplay between these live action and, and um, uh, animated sections and, and you talked about sort of how scenes are dropped in and so forth. I actually wondered, and this is probably a question that everybody who's worked on Aladdin, the remake is asked is that presumably you also, in some ways you had, you had a pre-existing, you know, an hour and 20 minute version of a previs in the, in the original cell animated cartoon. And then, and so actually I've, I've wanted to sort of ask, ask people who worked on the film because I, as I was watching it and I was looking at different reference points and thinking okay so this is where it's deviating from the original cell animated cartoon this is where it's adopting it kind of with the greater degree of uh, fidelity oh there's a reference to this and so forth um is there is there was there sort of a struggle to to sort of okay we want it to look like the other one but not want it to look like the other one how much how much did the original, and apologies if this is a very broad or a question that's painted with a very broad brush, but but to what extent did you literally go back and look at the original film? Or was that a sort of like, I'm not going to look at that because it might influence what we're, what we're doing here? And, and so what, what, how, how did you work with or maybe against the original cell animated cartoon? We were looking at it on a daily basis. Right. Absolutely, a daily basis. And I, know, I know there are... Um, a lot of detractors of the new of the new film and you know i'm not i'm not here to to i mean, i personally having worked on uh, quite a few decent films you end up getting to a point where you find them almost unwatchable because you've seen them so many times i never actually found that with aladdin i'm you know i'm i'm, I'm in the pro aladdin camp i thought i thought in the end um it was quite a fun movie but i can see for a lot of people it, it ruined their childhood um, <laughs> so we were and we also know that um it had such a big uh, fan base and any people kind of look at these things as kind of sacrilegious when, when you try and remake something like this they're like why on earth are you doing it it's just a kind of cash grab all that kind of stuff and it's understandable but I can tell you from being on the kind of front lines of making it we were trying to be as referential as possible to it um, whilst also trying to make something that was its own um, its own movie but there's also there's there's a lot, even even in the kind of world of kind of CG movies, even something like a fully CG film like Toy Story or something, there's not there's stuff you can do in 2D animation that you just can't do in 3D. Um, and we found this happening because we had this process, as I was saying, where uh, we were doing a lot of our post-fizz work using 2D animators doing the characters, that you can kind of, you can do stuff in 2D um very quickly you can change like you know, the genie's 
face from one thing to another. You can scale things up, scale things down. But in CG, um, it's incredible how it actually kind of mimics real life in many ways in that in, in a CG film, what you're doing is you, you're building a set. You're building a set, you're building a character. That character has a kind of a skeleton that is matchable. So if suddenly um, the editor would turn around and go, I really want the genie to come like suddenly pop into this character and you know change change dimension and do this and do that. That was something that they would have to literally build. Um, and just just like building a set or building a costume or anything like that, it, it, it's man hours and it's a lot of time. So that in 2D, you can do it really quickly because you've got no limitations. But in 3D, it's very difficult and very expensive and there's a lot of time pressure. So kind of, um, we found ourselves looking at the original to make sure that we were keeping kind of true to the spirit of it. We wanted to make sure that um, the characters of kind of Abu and Carpet were uh, were likable and had as much character, or kind of you know, tried to give them as much character as they had um, uh, in in the original. Uh, but because we were kind of grounded, first of all, with being predominantly live action, but secondly, by being the, the CG that we did have is all three D based, we couldn't we didn't have the complete open license to do what you can do in a 2D animation. So they, they kind of took the decision early on to kind of make it kind of to actually tone down the, the real fantasy of the movie um, because it meant that this was more of a human, it was, it, it, was more, it was more of a real thing. So it's still, it's still a fantasy movie. It still has all these things, but I think part of the reason Genie ended up looking more like Will Smith than looking like a kind of cartoony character was because we tried to ground it in a little bit of uh, realism is probably the wrong word, but you know, it's, it's all the other characters in the movie are, you know, human live action characters. So to suddenly have a cartoony genie, the idea, the kind of the feeling was that would kind of actually kind of go against what they were trying to do. So that's, that that um, brings up the question, I guess, of sort of the relationship between performer and and effects there, because obviously the the the, the, the albatross that one of the things you're being measured against that you can you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't is the Robin Williams Will Smith genie you know comparison, and um, with this process that you're describing, it sounds like there's a really interesting uh, technical behind the scenes story that's going to shape that relationship because at least my understanding of the original Chris correct me if I'm wrong but um, my understanding of the original is they basically got Robin Williams in to do an audio recording um, let him riff a lot with the lines and then you then they use that as the sort of basis of the storyboarding and the animation and you're I guess weren't quite in that luxury to be able to sort of I don't know, you know, I don't know how you, you'd either get, have to get Will Smith to sort of do all his lines and that isn't quite the same thing, or you'd have to mocap him in a studio and then, you know, work out the film. You're not really going to be have that luxury, I would assume, yeah. to do that. So did you find it a challenge to sort of, yeah. how do you give a performer like Will Smith, who's again sort of known for his fast talking, his spontaneity, his quick wit um, and all this sort of stuff, and, and give him the freedom to do something with the character that's a bit different. Well, yeah, because he, he always wanted to make it, you know, his own character. Sure. And we always thought that the selling point of Will Smith as a genie is that it's Will Smith. 
and um, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, who are doing all, all our visual effects, they had a whole brand new technology that they were using uh, to do uh, to kind of capture his facial animation. And so we kind of thought, there's no point trying to dress it up in any, in any other way. We've got Will Smith as the genie. Let's try and make it as you know, Will Smith as possible. And I think, the obviously, when, when that first trailer dropped and people saw, saw the genie, um, the reaction wasn't great, um, and you know, I, I would I, I won't say that people weren't concerned about it from inside the production. But what I will say was that we we tested the movie extensively with with audiences, and it had always scored really highly. Um, and this was before we had the kind of the, the final um, the final looking visual effects and everything. So um, because we knew that. Genie was Will being Will. Um, we weren't overly concerned that that was a kind of deal breaker for the movie. It was it was it was concerning because I think it, that's one of the most hated trailers that ever got released. Um, and when we were kind of in the last, and we were too close to delivery to be able to change anything, um, it wasn't like a kind of Sonic situation where the backlash was so heavy that they're like, right, we're going to do a redesign of the character. We we, we weren't at that stage. Mm. Um, so, but it also, the kind of question you're asking is, you know, how do Robin Williams kind of had carte blanche to do what he wanted and then they animate around it, whereas we were a lot more grounded because Will was often on set performing with Mina Masood, the guy playing Aladdin, um, and so you can only, you're kind of, you're limited to what you've already shot, and there are, you know, all most big movies these days, you come in, they do reshoots and pickup shoots and all sorts of bits and pieces. So there's always stuff that you can try and tweak later if you absolutely have to. Um, but usually they, those come quite late in the day and the less time you have to do visual effects work, the worse it looks. So everything that we kind of wanted to make sure was in the movie was done you know, as, as early as possible. Um, and it did mean that, yeah, we were kind of, constrained in a way that the 2d animation wasn't that's i find that really interesting this this grounded element of cg that you're you're talking about uh and, we, and we'll we'll get on to talking about the film actually you know in terms of the opening sequence shortly but i think the 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 grounded element of of cg that you're referring to the fact that you're talking about constraints and limitations and that cg is behaving like live action and that there is being offset against uh, the freedoms of cell animation. Certainly I think the default position on a lot of CG stuff is that it, you know, it allows for um, all these amazing transformations, which are obviously well served in the, in the film itself with, with um, the genie as a particular kind of transformative character. But um, certainly the, I think the, yeah, the grounded element of CG that is maybe then mediated by Will Smith's uh, stardom. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with it, with uh, the remake of Aladdin because I'm convinced it's a it's a remake of Hitch or a sequel of Hitch. Right. Yeah. Um, because of the closing sequence, the the uh, kind of his his role as this sort of quite unquite magical Negro figure, the coolness that's um, sort of historically been associated with with black representation. Um, this idea of this magical Negro character, this black character who comes to the aid of the white protagonist. And of course, Will Smith's got form anyway, Hitch, but, you know, Legend mm -hmm. of Bagger Vance, the golfing movie made with Matt Damon. So there's something interesting about how the film uses, in the same way the cell animated cartoon, I think, used, uh, Will, um, used Robin Williams's 
is star persona really effectively. I feel like the same process is in operation here that you that you are really using and, and, and playing into his star persona, his kind of history of performances. And it seems like you're really creating this or crafting this creative bargain with him as a, a star performer and trying to exploit that as much as you can. Yeah, he, I mean, he was our kind of trump card. And the thing is, we were absolutely adamant that it, it wasn't going to, well, I'm not, I say we weren't, the, the filmmakers uh, way above me were very, um, adamant to make sure that this wasn't some kind of Robin Williams impersonation. It wasn't. This wasn't trying to be um, a redo of what Robin Williams did because you can't match that. Robin Williams was uh, an explosive um, presence in that in that film, and you know, he's that that role is he totally owns it. So the only thing that Will Smith can do is do it as Will Smith. Um, and so that's what that's what he brought to the role was just doing it like he does it. And as you say, he kind of if that comes across as being a bit of a kind of hitch version two, that's probably fine for Will because that was that was kind of Will Smith at the height of his yeah. popularity. Um, and um, I I'm actually a little bit surprised that um, when it came time for kind of um, considering how well the film did um, at the box office and how. Even now, I kind of I, I see a few things of people going, you know. I, I thought Will Smith did a great job. You know, never forget Robin Williams; he did a great role. But, ha- however, Will still did a good job. I thought Will was a little bit unlucky actually not to get even a nod at Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars because I thought that he he really did. That film hinges on um, Will Smith, um, and you know, not that the other the other cast and performance aren't, aren't good in it but if if will smith wasn't if it wasn't a vehicle for will smith to carry i don't think people would have you know would have gone to see it in droves and he manages to to really kind of um uh, yeah to carry the movie on his back really so um i thought i thought he did a really good job and um yeah it was just it was just will 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 smith being will smith in a kind of way that people hadn't seen for a while yeah you know, he'd gone he'd done a few more serious roles and he'd kind of been a little bit out of the, the kind of public um, uh, public thought process for a little while um, and then this was him back being the Will Smith that a lot of people knew and loved from the kind of 90s and early 2000s. So it's interesting because I, I, I think I, I rewatched it again last night I did go and see it at the cinema um, and I rewatched it again last night and I and I had a pretty similar reaction to I had at the cinema which was that with the, with the Will Smith character I think that the genie character in this new version sings the best for about sort of 10-15 minutes when they arrive at the palace after the, the well the Prince Ali numbers sort of um, very very good in terms of um, you know Will does a, does a great job with that and then there's all the sort of stuff of this jam sequence that's yeah. very very funny, and the party, and the sort of Bollywood dance number, and uh, and and where where perhaps he isn't quite so um, good is the sort of opening section because oh you mean hit you mean hit on the on the boat all that kind of stuff well no no not just sort of you know the friend like me stuff oh right um because to me that is you know it's it's pretty line per line what Robin Williams says. So I wonder if maybe this is a really lazy thing to say, which is why, Miles, you should, you should, you know, let's correct this myth. But to me, it almost is like, you know, where, where this, where, where he's being folded in with the digital technology, and that's a, I'm assuming the friend like me sequence is an incredibly elaborate thing. It requires a huge amount of 
um, pre-planning as to what the shots are all doing. There's not much room, really, for Will to do much with that other than deliver the lines in a slightly different tone or intonation than than Robin uh, Williams did. But with the sort of the, the the sequences where he gets to be a human character running around the palace, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's all scripted and all that sort of. It felt like he was given that space to breathe on screen again. Well, yeah. I mean, when when kind of uh, publicity images were released um, before um, before the reveal of the genie, a lot of people were kind of like, "Oh, it looks like Will Smith is just Will Smith in this film." But the first pictures they released were just him. Uh, not as CG, but him in his human form. Um, and obviously, Will being in human form gets to fully be Will Smith. You know, there's no CG interpretation of what he's doing. And uh, I suppose the the difficulty of something like a friend like me is that we are you're trying to... The genie is this dynamic character that can fly, it can move, he can zip around, he can do... You know, he's pretty much omnipotent. Um uh, and but Will Smith isn't omnipotent as much as you know people may tell you he is. Um, <laughs> another myth busted. <laughs> another myth. Yeah, yeah, that's that's gone. But um, so on set, he's he was there on set, kind of with Mina, uh, the guy playing Aladdin, doing doing all the lines and doing a lot a lot of the performance. But he was doing that kind of walking and talking next to him when in reality for the final movie. The genie is going to be floating round, spinning round. So Will wasn't able to, you know, he, he can't he can't do that. So we then, we're having to translate and also come up with performance for him. So I suppose maybe what you're kind of feeling from that is precisely the kind of the limitation of that in as much as we're, we're able to reference what Will was doing on set. We we also then had to turn him into the genie and have him do um, do things that only the genie in his kind of big blue form can do, um, which yeah I kind of I can take your point on it. But in terms of the song itself, like we one of the first things I saw when I came onto the film was a kind of a, a, a test of the motion capture software, which just had Will recorded singing the song um and yeah if you if you put the will smith friend like me side by side with the uh, robin williams friend like me it is funny how because we got so used i mean we heard that on a daily basis so that song had been drilled into my subconscious <laughs> um but then when we, when you'd go back and listen to the robin williams version you act, it actually not that it's a not that it isn't a great song and all the lyrics there and everything, but it feels much more pared back. It's it's kind of it's not it's a guy saying lines rather than Will Smith who's kind of uh, actually performing them and kind of singing them and and kind of doing doing a rap. The, the beat is a lot heavier. That it's 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 funny. Like you go from one to the other and suddenly you're like, wow, was it, was the original song quite as sparse? And I'm not trying to do you know there'll be there'll be a lot of fans of the original who are saying this is sacrilege, whatever, but if you if you listen to friend like me as much as you had in the new version, and then you go back to the original version, it's, it feels very um, empty is the wrong word, but sparse is probably um, uh, fairer. Uh, so yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't like they just thought oh we'll just we'll just replicate what we had before. They did try and kind of build on it. Um, uh, whether you know how successful that is, you know, I, I, people's mileage will vary on it, I suppose. I actually had, a, I suppose, a bigger 
question about the relationship between this film and the and the sort of cell animated um, version in insofar as the use of use of effects and obviously the role of the, the genie in, in both orchestrating the film's effects but also being an effect in and of him himself one of the things I noticed was that the, the sequences that were CG in the original um, 92 um, feature so uh, and we talked about this you know when we did the did the original so the cave of wonders when that kind of comes out of the, the sand and the magic carpet ride uh, in a strange way, and perhaps I'm less sure of this as I think about it, but those sequences, so the the emergence of the, the first emergence of the Cave of Wonders and the the magic carpet ride out of the out of the cave, are actually they seem to me to be not bracketed as visual effects in the same way as they were in the cartoon. Because if I remember <laughs> in the first cartoon, the the emergence of the, the Cave of Wonders from the Sand is treated as, a, as an effect within the film itself. So you have these characters looking up as it, as it sort of um, ascends. But in this film, I felt like the, the first um, presence of the Cave of Wonders where Jafar sends somebody down and it doesn't quite, doesn't quite work out. Um, it was just there and it was kind of downplayed a little bit amid the chaos of the market because the opening few sequences sort of take the, the audience through this quite intricate and elaborate Agrabah set. Um, and by, you know, set as in the kind of a virtual backlot, essentially. Um, but it seemed to be that, that that sequence downplayed a little bit what was in the original a, a visual effect and similarly with the magic carpet ride like it is it is spectacular but i remember what i quite liked about this new version was that it it sort of it created effects out of different things so things the, the sequence i think that you that we we referenced earlier so the return of aladdin back from when he's banished to the ends of the earth um i thought that was a really interesting sequence, really exciting his return from the ends of the earth and that kind of capture of the lamp back i thought was a really decent sequence and a really nice Bit of bit of staging, and and so I like the way that this film sort of created created new visual effects and tried to do tried to do something different. You know, there's lots of what I found interesting was that there were lots of references to sort of the the past. I think Gene, the genie even says at some point, you know, genie uh, in the lamps is any of that ringing any bells? Obviously, Jafar is obsessed about being second, and so there's a nice parallel between this film as sort of like the the second. The second one for people of my our generation version of Aladdin, um, and how this film felt a little bit like it, it relied on the '92 cartoon to fill in some sort of gaps, and then that gave it a bit of scope to create to create new effects and new set pieces out of out of everything else. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that kind of comes back to it, it trying to be a little bit more grounded as well in that um, the Cave of Wonders in this one is just a pre-existing cave, um, you know, in, in a cave wall. It doesn't kind of spring out of the ground because the only thing that's magic in this in this film, supposedly, um, other than Jafar's staff that allows him to do a few things, but the only thing that's supposed to be really magical is the genie himself. Um, yeah. So they tried to kind of have things that were more real-world locations and not have things be... Um, because the genie is supposed to be so mind-blowing to the people that you know haven't seen this before he, he's the real um uh yeah the kind of the, the firework in in the midst of all of everything else and even though it is a fantasy movie they tried to build a world in which um he was the most fantastical thing um so if you've got kind of mm. caves that rise out of the ground and do do this that and the other without any real motivation to do so you're kind of diminishing the impact that the genie has when he arrives um yeah 
and I think that that was that was part of their thinking behind it. I can't can't speak fully for all, all the design design decisions like that because that most the majority well all of that was decided before I'd even, before I'd even started. But um, yeah, I mean if you if you look at um, them going into the cave of wonders as well, so the kind of the cave in the cartoon is a kind of um, it's almost like a shrine. It's a it's a series of steps up to um, up to where the lamp is and in this one it's more of a kind of it's just a it's a cave with a big spike why there's a lamp at the right top of the spike is you know up up for debate but it they tried to make it look more um more more real while still being clearly fantastical um so yeah they, they kind of mm. they tried to strike a balance between um fantasy and giving it a level of grounding uh, just in the same way that uh, Iago, there was a fair bit of conversation about, you know, would he would he talk? Would he be a talking character? Um, and that kind of went through a series of discussions as to whether he'd be um, wise talking character from the ninety two original, or whether he'd just be a parrot that just kind of aped things that he heard other people say. Um, and they ended up getting Alan Tudyk, who seems to be the go-to voiceover guy for pretty much everything, to come in and do do lines with him in the end. But that that was a process of trying to figure out how um, how far we wanted to go with making this. Um, you know, he did, I don't, guy didn't want him to be some kind of wisecracking, sentient um, humanoid character. He was supposed to be a parrot. So the lines that he does end up saying are kind of just on the on the edge of being kind of something that uh, a parrot could could potentially say i think yeah it's, um but it's, it's certainly not the um the level that was there in the original i think and i think that that was one that it was that that was a tough one to negotiate because you're trying to um and also the same with the boo a boo a guy didn't want a boo to be um much more than um a monkey. He didn't want it. He didn't want him to be um, like have a human intelligence and do this and that. So he really wanted to keep him as um, uh, as as animal as possible, while still being cute and funny. And um, uh, yeah, so that, there's a moment where Abu slaps Aladdin for looking um, for looking at one of the jewels in the in the cave, and that was kind of do we don't we that kind of shows he's, he's he's got a kind of level of intelligence that we haven't otherwise put on him so we're having these questions and discussions constantly uh, throughout throughout the process because we wanted to try and um, keep things consistent you know a lot of thought thought process went went into all of the different um, creatures and characters and um, yeah it was uh, an attempt to keep things um, have their own inner logic. Yeah. So I, I feel I have to earn my crust now because uh, we've used words like magic and fantasy and imagination, and you know, <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't ask my um, my my sort of geeky question. So I'll ask a slightly academic starting question, but it will end up in a, in a pretty practical question, I think. Um, it sounds like what you're you're talking about then is that you, that as a production team, as a creative team, you decided to switch what us sort of scholars call the rhetoric of the fantasy in the film, and that and we 
on the podcast we talk about this quite a lot but it sounds like the original film is very much what we might call an immersive fantasy so it's a film that's sort of set in a magical world magic is permissible in this world um from jafar's staff to everything else to talking parrots to the genies and you wanted to sort of slightly switch that to what we might call an intrusive fantasy so that's a fantasy where there's an element that intrudes upon a world that we might call reality and the the source of magic and fantasy is that sort of that intrusion so mary poppins is a sort of good example of an intrusive fantasy so you wanted to sort of locate the source of magic and imagination to the genie and downplay all the other stuff and it's it's interesting to hear about the characters and abu and um and Iago, but I would like to ask a question about the setting, because the setting therefore has to change, because um, and I think the, I would love to hear about the technical process of how you decided upon shots, what shots were, were going to be CGI, what shots were going to be on set, what shots were going to be sort of on location, about the sort of the world of Agrabah, because obviously that is a, a, a made up place it's a sort of, you know, a place made up by the 92 cartoon um, there's a whole history in fantasy literature about this tale, about where it's come from um, there's many scholars that claim it's actually originally a Chinese tale and a lot of sort of pre-versions of it have said it in Baghdad um, anything you could like shed a listener's light on sort of how the, the was there any discussion about whether you'd change the setting to a more real life location and was there any how did you then think what were your thought process on like how much of this set how much of this world do we build how much world do we, do we create in a computer how much do we show how much do we not show that kind of thing well that when you um so agrabah um the set uh, for a lot of it was was built and there were, there were mm. uh, huge stages built at uh, long cross studios so they're kind of the whole central kind of market area and um the palace a lot of the kind of uh, the palace, the courtyard, and Jasmine's room, and the throne room, and all those kind of things—they—they were all built, but it was all—it um, uh, was all modelled on the, the kind of the look from the cartoon. But they tried to, again, make it a bit more um, real world. But so one of the ones. So if you look at the kind of even the, the poster or the cover of the '92 uh, original, all of the palaces have this kind of mushroomy. Um, tulip kind of shaped dome on the top of the buildings that is very cartoony um, and they wanted to kind of have similar type buildings that were kind of I think it was all I can't tell you exactly what the cities uh, where, where they were based on but they looked at kind of mosques and they looked at a lot of um, reference for these buildings and but they decided that kind of that bulbous dome cartoony look was a bit too much so again they tried to make it look real world but at a certain point it because he had the kind of city in the middle of the desert it ended up looking a bit like Tatooine from um <laughs> from Star Wars and so they, they had to kind of fantasy up a little bit and they they kind of they did that by having quite strong kind of pastel colors and they, they tried to make it look look vibrant um uh, and fantastical but again based on real world uh, locations. And then we also knew that um, there would be a lot of location shooting. So they went and shot in Jordan. Uh, so all the kind of stuff uh, in the desert was shot there and they did some uh, exterior uh, location stuff in Iceland for when he gets banished. Um, but in, ter in, in terms of building Agrabah and making, making it this kind of fantastical place, they, you know, they they had 
a very um, sophisticated 3D model of all of Agrabah that went through um, dozens, if not hundreds of revisions to, to make the palace look believable. And also that the, one of the things you get, so one, again, when you have a 3D build of something, people think in CG, you know, that you can do anything. And so sometimes um, they, they'd have built a set for, uh, say, Jasmine's room, and there'd be a green screen for what's out of the balcony. Um, and the editor would be like, oh, okay, let's, so we're going to cut to a shot looking at the balcony, and out of the balcony you see this clock tower or this bell tower or whatever it was you want to look at. Um, and the VFX supervisor would come back and go, oh, sure, but that's not where the bell tower, that's not where, that, that's not where the bell tower is. And the editor would kind of say, I mean, what do you mean that's not where it is? With CG, we can put it anywhere. But, and it becomes this trade-off because the actual set of Agrabah was built in the computer. So if you looked through the window in that direction, you would actually see you know, a view that existed. And so in order to put the, the shot that the editor wanted in, they had to cheat the design of the set um, in, in CG. Um, and there's, there's often a kind of trade-off in those types of things where people kind of, um, they think because it, because of your, it's a CG film, because um, the geography of things um, can be created, um, that you can put things anywhere, but it does mean that they then have to rethink um, how they've built the, the virtual set. Um, but yeah, in, uh, I think you're, correct in saying it's kind of like a an intrusion fantasy because they did try and make it um uh look like some somewhere that could have existed in a fairy tale but not be a place that is full of you know magic in and of itself um so the end as i said the only thing beyond the genie in the film that is kind of really magical other than the cave is jafar's staff and again and that went through a kind of a series of um, kind of debates as to how how magical that staff should be because they didn't want it to be a world where just anything could happen and people could just um, do what they wanted. Well, the um, the the issue of kind of logic and the set and the um, the tangibility of the sets and as you say, I think that feeds into this this distinction that Alex is making between immersive and in, intrusive. But I suppose on a practical level, and this maybe gets the film back to the question of genre and and uh, also the role of musicals, because I was thinking about. Um, how it's really important that the Agrabah set is is material or, or or was built because the one jump ahead number, which I think is is the first number. Oh no, it's I suppose it's it's, it's the second. Yeah, Arabian Nights is the first one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's but it's it's the introduction of Aladdin and it's supposed to sort of signpost his agility and his familiarity with the space and and obviously that feeds into his location. He he lives atop and 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 knows the city. In, sort of inside out um it's really important or it feels really important that the set is tangible because it's a, sort of a set piece and 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 it reminded me of those sorts of um it was called the bws or these big white sets that we use these architectural set pieces that were designed for hollywood musicals you know these big um large sets that were or were certainly spaces in which because of their color were supposed to emphasize these sorts of contrasts between um you know uh, fred astaire and dancing in in quote unquote venice in top hat which is really this sort of big white set um 
but ultimately that these big white sets were spaces where the largest part of the budget would have been devoted to. It was a sort of sense of physical production. Obviously, in the case of the musical, we want to see somebody dancing, tap dancing um, there. We want to see them in full length shot. We want them to be on the set. We want them to sort of be be performing live, so to speak. And it seems like... A, yeah, it's money on screen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it seems like a similar process is being applied to this sort of um, to this sort of film, that you want, you want that materiality to certain kinds of set pieces because that to have that materiality in one jump ahead is ultimately to offset it against a friend like me which is all sort of imaginary and illusory because it's it's achieved through computer graphics and so you want that contrast between set pieces that are grounded and material because the narrative sort of demands that Aladdin is familiar with this location and then friend like me which is yeah which is kind of all being conducted by the genie and so it, and then disappears as quickly as it reappeared yes yeah, so, yeah so one jump ahead is um predominantly live action using real sets and maybe a little bit of set extension in the backgrounds and um paint talents and a few bits and pieces whereas friend like me is almost entirely cg i mean um even even a lot of the set that was there ended up being replaced with cg in order to make it all look consistent so mm. they're two kind of very different sequences but the one i'd say is the one that really showcases um, Agrabah as the location is um, is the Prince Ali's parade because that's the one where they they get they had you know there was an absolutely huge crowd day the type of crowd day that we will probably never have again after the whole uh, Corona crisis that we're having at the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of hundreds, hundreds of extras uh, coming in, all watching. I mean. There are, there are smiles on everyone's faces in that sequence and they were all completely genuine. Like the, the rushes for that scene were an absolute treat um, because it was just it was just Will Smith on a cart, hundreds of people watching, the music was blaring out on set uh, and, you know, they had, I think they had, uh, they had up to G camera. So A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They had seven cameras shooting it um, they, and yeah, they they knew that what they had there was was money on screen and it's production value and it's it's that's the type of thing that can draw people in. And when you have something that kind of um, sells sells your location, that also sells your star, um, I think yeah, that that kind of thing is invaluable. And if that was all, you know, that, that if that sequence was all fully CG, then I don't think it would have had half half the impact. Uh, because people still react to um, to real world, you know. People, even if people know it's a set, they can they can appreciate the scale of it. Yeah. Um, and if they see hundreds of extras on screen, it just it's one of those things. Just the organisational um, kind of uh, the difficulty behind that is impressive. So it's one of those things where. Um, if you're going to make a live action remake of something, make a live action remake of something. Don't just be like, oh, okay, well, don't, for me, the new Lion King, I won't go into it, but I, I don't to the point because you know, you've got a, you've got a 2d original, yeah. you've got this live action remake, but it's just a, it's just all CG anyway. So I just don't, if you're going to make a live action remake of something, you know, at least try and um, use the medium as it's intended and you know it's, it's it's a big studio movie and studio movies as you say used to be built on these massive sets you look at the, the set for Intolerance a D.W. Griffith film from um, from 
1920s, I think, or maybe even earlier. Mm. It's one, yeah, it's one, one of one of the largest sets ever built, some of which is still um, evident on Hollywood Boulevard. And it's kind of, I think, with that uh, Prince Ali parade number, they were trying to hark back to these kind of big studio musical numbers. Yeah. I was going to ask about Hollywood musicals generally, you know, like w- whether they were a reference point, because there's a couple of moves. Um, so there's a, a film Stormy Weather with the Nicholas brothers jumping over each other's heads and landing, you know, in the splits is replicated in Friend Like Me exactly. So I was actually going to ask whether Hollywood musicals were a reference point. Uh, well, they would have been for the choreographer, I'm sure. Um, yeah. That Again, all of, all of that stuff was uh, was pre-planned. That, that wasn't something that we... Um, I mean, we did, we did look at a few musical numbers from from sequences in the edit, but generally speaking, those those were things that were done in the, in the design stage of the film, which was kind of before before my time. So I can't um, I can't really talk about their reference points. But I have seen the, um, the the thing that you mentioned where they're jumping down the steps and they're doing the splits at the time. I'm I'm almost certain that that was um, a deliberate reference point, uh, and all the kind of you know the Bugsby Barkley musicals and things like that would have been. Uh, things that they uh, had in their mind. I mean, uh, going on to Muppets, most wanted. If you wanted to talk about you, that, you had to get it in, didn't you? You had to get it. In. Had to, had to get it in. Finally, things are kicking into gear. <laughs> <laughs> but but the opening number for that film is them doing a big Hollywood musical number, and it has it's kind of self-referential to the point that it has them walking through the studio onto the sets where they're doing the musical numbers. So um, these we're at a point in Hollywood now where almost nothing hasn't been done before. Um, and with with success of kind of revival films like La La Land or something, where you kind of suddenly realise that, wow, the, the, the musical, which was a genre that kind of went out of fashion for a long time, is suddenly not just fashionable, but Oscar-worthy, um, I think. And then you, you have The Greatest Showman and you have all these films where suddenly people are like, wow, people actually do, they like a sing-along and they like they like um, the old school Hollywood values. I think that kind of tied into it. So if they, I'm, I'm sure they would have been looking at the, the, the kind of the classics as reference points, but mm. I can't speak to which films they, they used predominantly. But um, yeah, it was a talented team who, who were behind it. So I feel like it's got a kind of classical um, quality to it. However, However, that qualifies the staging, the the musical numbers, and so forth. But um... well, and speaking as a viewer, like um, the Cave of Wonders actually was quite reminiscent of um, Alibaba and the Four Beast Body Thieves, which is a nineteen like forties Technicolor sort of wonder movie. The genie sort of looks quite a lot like the genie from Thief of Baghdad, the nineteen forties sort of Alexander Cordra version. I mean, I don't know. I, I, you know, as you say, it sounds like that was before your time, but. It reminded me of that with those films, but I have seen those, you know, films quite a few times. So maybe I'm, I'm wanting to find links, but it all adds to this classical showman flavour to it, which is actually very successful. The moments, the um, Ali sequence is a real highlight of the piece, absolutely. Yeah, and I think Gene, I mean, the genie um, again. Uh, there's there's an, an awful lot of people who aren't a fan of the design of it, but I, I will say that the um, when you're doing um, kind of visual effects reviews and concepts of things they they do uh, they show you kind of builds of of characters and you have like these 3d models that you can kind of spin around and look at it in different lighting environments and you can agonize over every little bit of detail and so we had these for all of the characters we had them for kind of 
Raja and Abu and Iago and, and, and Genie, and it would be a case of having all the kind of um, the kind of visual effects uh, supervisors from you know, from ILM and from the production side itself, and all the artists they'd come in and they would agonise over every single detail about the about the design. You know, kind of we were talking we were talking about opacity of earlobes and stuff like that at certain points. So it's, it's, it isn't it isn't something that was just thrown together at the last minute and gone oh that will do. Uh, it just oh it looks a bit like Will Smith. The, the thing that I was always I, I you know I kind of wanted to defend. Um, uh, was the, the shot that did come out in that trailer where people were like, "Oh, they've just taken Will Smith's face and they've two D, they just two D stuck it onto model and it looks horrendous." It's like, no, that was, it was entirely com- completely CG. Like that's that's the thing that um, kind of uh, was upsetting about that was that a lot of people seem to think they've just done a horrible two D bodge and stuck it onto a three D three D model when, in actual fact, the entire entirety of that was was CG. Um, and in order to, because the performance of the genie kind of lives or dies as, as to how much you read Will Smith's kind of emotions and kind of line delivery and everything from it, the, the performance capture technology they used was so intricate that, you, you know, you were getting kind of the furrowing of his brow, or you were getting a lot, an awful lot of detail that because people weren't, I mean, a lot of people weren't overly enamored with the design, they just kind of say, Oh, that was a bad visual effects shot. When in reality, the actual technicalities behind it were um, were pretty um, were pretty advanced. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I'll always, I'll always kind of I'll um, take it take it to my grave that I I don't mind the genie. I thought I thought he was fine. <laughs> I thought he was fine, and I think it's just um, people. It's a lot of it is, is preconception, and a lot of it is um, you know I think whenever the genie reveal was going to happen. You couldn't. You, we were in a no-win situation. No one was ever going to look at it and go, "Oh, great! That's exactly how I imagined a live-action interpretation of the genie was going to look like." There was always going to be detractors, and so I think, I think the, um, the the way they looked at it was, "Well, you know what? We'll just have it be as will as possible, and um, hope hope his performance comes through." And that's that's the thing that people take away from it. And if you can still watch the genie and feel like it is Will Smith, then they kind of achieved something, um, so yeah. I, I'll, because I because I know a lot of people work very hard for a long time to do it. Yeah. I'm just going to give them a, a you know a shout out and just say I think they did okay. No, I I, I agree. I think the, the uh, just there's a couple of things you know I'd like to. I think the genie at some point says the genie magic is just a facade. Uh, at some point, the real you is going to shine through, which is seems exactly the tension that's being borne out in the casting of somebody so recognisable as Will Smith. As you say, you're in a sort of no win situation, and 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 so that that tension between the star and the animated original and, and how much the real is going to, to, to intercede, which I guess goes back to Alex's point about live action itself becomes an effect in these, in these kinds of movies. Um, but it also ties in your point about materiality and, and the importance of materiality and the grounding of CG, because I think one of my favorite bits that isn't in the original, but is sort of a callback to some, the final shot of the original Um or the, the Disney original, is the, the moment where the film rewinds and we cut to the genie sitting in a cinema audience and he turns to the audience, us, and says, I've never seen that before, um, to sort of go back and check over the film footage. And you see the film's sprocket holes. And that is a moment where it's obviously playing with cinema spectatorship. It's, it's sort of playing with this kind of ironic distance that the film 
the the Disney 92 version had in the final shot, you know, major look. But it's also trying to give a sort of a shout out to the materiality of the film stock, that this is a film that that is there and we can rewind and rewatch it. And so I quite like that, that sort of playful rewinding of the film to, to, to re-emphasize its materiality, that there's a kind of a tangible quality to the film. Um, well, um, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that was of all of the shots in the film, <laughs> that was the one that was the hardest to do um, uh, for me, because if you look at the amount of uh, stuff that goes on in that rewind, it's all, it's like, a minus five thousand percent rewind of of footage. I won't go. I won't bore you with the details. But um, what we do in visual effects is we create things called count sheets for a shot, which kind of break down all the all the various elements that go into making a shot. And the count sheet for that was about eight times longer than any of the others. It was um, it was very difficult. Um, so I'm glad I'm glad um, that's that's come up. But also, yeah, it was that was um, it, it was it was scripted, but um, it was a kind of it was. An idea of the editor really to um, to chuck in yeah. that kind of that moment and have it. He, you know, he had he had a lot of reference points for how he wanted it to look. There was a kind of there's a definite mention of Fight Club. Uh, there's that bit in Fight Club where uh, Tyler Durden's talking to the camera and and the camera starts shaking and you start to see the, the sprocket holes of, of the film. Um, and yeah, he wanted he wanted to um, have it feel like. Yeah, like Ginny is is able to break the fourth wall, but you know, I think that's almost um, the only time that he really does it in the movie. Like there are a few nods and winks and kind of little asides, but that's the first time in the whole film that he really talks directly to the audience. Um, and so that was that was something that could have ended up on the cutting room floor, funnily enough. But um, we decided well that uh, it always went down well in audience screenings and. It just felt like a fun moment, and yeah, as you say, it was a good opportunity to kind of um, to kind of step out of the film for a moment. Um, I guess uh, just before we, we let you go, I wondered you, you obviously um, you've talked uh, about the various elements of the film. Is there one particular um, shot or or moment that you worked on that sort of stands out for you as a sort of um, either something that was particularly challenging or something that you are particularly proud of, given that you've spoken really you know, um, I think positively about all the different people's contribution to, to this film, the amount of work that went into to it. Uh, and so, yeah, is there a particular moment or a sequence or a, a bit of a character that you are most proud of? Um, I, I always like the opening sequence shot. So it's kind of like a, it's a one minute kind of shot from um, from when he starts singing Arabian Nights to, um, to the end of the opening credits. Um, and that you know, used to be, my favorite, but then I did 1917, where they ended up doing that for like two hours, and so I'm a bit over a single shot things now. I never want to see one again. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would, I would have said uh, that rewind scene um, uh, before you'd mentioned it because that was the one that really uh, that was that was very difficult to figure out because we needed to know what the shot when we when he was doing the editor did that rewind section based on an early version of the cut and he did it on he did the rewind as an effect as a kind of mixed down effect which means you can't kind of step into the, the material and find out what frames he's using um but he did it on an early version of the edit which meant that mm. we weren't going to ask um ilm to do work adding genie on shots that weren't actually in the film so i had to kind of find shots that we were going to be in the final film and kind of transpose that in a way that the editor was happy with 
But I suppose for me, the the sequence that um, I feel I had the most um, effect on was probably the, uh, the sequence where all the characters, so um, Dahlia and uh, Jasmine and the Sultan, get raised up and put into stasis, kind of floating up in the air, um, because that was all shot on phantom cameras at like a thousand frames a second. Um, and um, all of the performances in those sequences were kind of performances that I, I picture at the editor um, was happy just to say, oh, you know, go through, find what you think is the best bit of performance in there. Um, and yeah, so I'd go through so all, all of those bits of them kind of floating up in, in the air in that sequence were things that um, I both picked, placed and ended up being um, the, the used um, bits of material. So it's always nice when you kind of, when you have, having worked in the film, you can't wait and you kind of think, uh, would the film be different if you hadn't worked on it? And um, thankfully, I mean, there are, over over the course of the years, more and more that's been that has been the case, and it's it's very nice to see in the final kind of film when there is something in there that you know you were kind of responsible for. So yeah, probably that. Amazing, um, Alex. Any final fantasy-based thoughts? Anything that from the film that uh, that jumped out at you, or I think you've just sort of um, addressed it a little bit there, Miles. But I was going to ask you a question about a lot long takes and one takes because because Guy Ritchie likes a likes a sweeping camera going around lots of things, and you sort of talked about that opening sequence and with your time on 1917. I suspect you've got a lot of perspective on this. What does that like you know in a, in a in a you know as brief an answer as you feel like you can give? Um, what does that do? What, what challenges does that present to your job? Then is it much 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 harder? Um, so just any listeners who don't understand why that might be harder, what are the challenges that come from sort of having to uh, map the effects live action relationship onto, onto a constantly moving one take camera? But, yeah, the challenges are just how many pieces go into making that thing look like it is one take, really, uh, and how long that take is. So with the opening, um, the opening four minute uh, Arabian night sequence, that that shot took over a year to make to do uh, from from us turning it over to it being delivered back. It was a year's worth of work, um, and um, because and also friend like me in the early stages was um, con- conceived to be entirely one shot for the whole for the whole song. Ended up having it was it still has a series of long takes with little transitions between them, but it's probably broken up into five or six now. Um, but the difficulty comes in you don't want to be um, yeah you want to be able to track the shot uh, but also not be constrained by having to deliver the entire thing back every time and in, in its entirety and so there might be kind of different bits of the shot that are being worked on so with something like Arabian Nights you've got um, you've got Abu doing things you've got Raja doing things you've got Yago flying off it's, int- it's trying to introduce all the characters and the location all in one go but not all of those things are being worked on at the same time. So you've got environment work being worked on in the background. You've got animation work being worked on um, by different um, people in, in the facility. Not everything gets worked on all, all the time uh, at the same time. So we were getting little patches of those shots back in, um, which were kind of dependent on all of those different features. Uh, and it, it's never kind of, sometimes you might have a newer version of, the Raja animation, um, but that's missing the background of Agrabah, or it's missing um, some of the kind of paint out work that's been done in order to make the rest of the shot look nice. So um, 
you end up having to kind of sometimes um, budge like Frankenstein together um, a version of that full shot where you're kind of using different versions of different elements to try and make it um, to try and give you the most up-to-date version of the shot before it's finally ready to be delivered back as one thing um, and yeah that is um, on Aladdin we had yeah that four minute take and then a couple of I think maybe one minute or two minute takes and friend like me and we treated them all as individual shots so I think the Agrabah the um, Arabian Nights one was kind of 10,000 frames or it was it was something it was something very long um, and because that was the exception rather than the rule it you know we found we could manage it like that but when we actually came to do it on 1917 because the whole thing was one shot we decided it was a lot more um, straightforward to do it as little uh, kind of 500 frame chunks and we did a similar thing in um, the first Fantastic Beasts as well there's a, uh, a long shot once it goes into uh, Newt suitcase, suitcase if you know the film and they go down into it and it pretty much goes around the whole suitcase um, and I'm, I'm, I'm reveals it all in one in one shot and I remember conversations towards the end of that because that went out to so many different vendors who are working on so many different parts of it um, uh, the supervisor ends up saying I, I wish we'd wish we'd broken this up into few into kind of more manageable bits because trying to treat it all as one thing is very difficult like the, the longer a shot gets the more exponentially difficult it becomes to deliver um, so yeah so if anyone's ever got any one shot movies I'm not available yeah <laughs> Uh, Miles, thank you ever so much for sharing. Well, I was—I mean, so many different elements of uh, of the film, both sort of your role on it, but the, I guess the various workings of a, a film that seems highly complex and maybe, maybe, in, and, and certainly indicative of, of the kinds of move, the kinds of um, processes that seem to go on in movies that, as you say, perhaps get a an ambivalent critical reception. You know, there is that side of things, but then there's also the the integration, the manipulation of live action, its combination with with computer animation, all these different elements that I think play a part in in something that is kind of quite quite complex. So I guess, you know, go off and rewatch the movie everybody and uh and appreciate all these, you know, especially the opening sequence that you said takes a year to produce. I think that is um yeah, that is kind of remarkable. Um, so thank you. Um, Miles, is there anywhere in terms of where people can find you? Are you a social media bod? Are you, um, can people hunt you down and, and get you to make their one take movies? I'm, 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 I'm very happy being uh, behind the camera. So um, uh, I, I've, I've not got a huge uh, online presence. Uh, if, if people need to find me, I'm on LinkedIn and, and all of that stuff. So um, yeah, that's all. <laughs> great, great, great. And can I also please just give a shout out to Tina Smith, who is my co-VFX editor and all-round legend. Thanks, Buzz. Um, so you can find us, as always, um, at uh, fantasyanimation.org. That's fantasy-animation.org. Um, read our latest blog posts, download previous episodes, um, take part in the conversations on there. You can also find us on social media, at Twitter, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Same handle for the Instagram, as well as the Facebook talk to us on there we'll be choosing some more feel good fan animes for our next episode so 
plenty of time to get them in um, and we'll keep you updated on future guests um, as well. So yes, thank you Miles for joining us. Um, please do um, check out our, our blogs and our podcasts and we'll hopefully be able to provide you when Aladdin gets remade again in <laughs> 10, 20, 30 years. They'll, they'll, they'll do the sequel. If, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm back on for the sequel then um, I'll, I'll be sure to come back and give you guys a update. Great. That's us for another week. Um, I've been Alex. I've been Chris. And we'll see you next time. Bye. The way in the old bazaar. Hey, you let us through. It's a brand new star. Oh, come be the first on your block to meet his eye. Make way, here he comes. Ring bells, bang the drum. If you're gonna love this guy, Prince Ali, fabulous. He, Ali, Show some respect. Boy, can you flex down on one knee?